This is episode number 343 with founder and CEO at Data Science Retreat, Jose Quesada. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today's guest is super interesting, super exciting. I had a wonderful chat with Jose Quesada. So there's this retreat called the Data Science Retreat. And really, it isn't a holiday retreat. It's an intense training program in data science. It was actually founded by Jose Quesada. So Jose is a serial entrepreneur. This is one of his most recent ventures. So what it's all about is for three months, you go to Berlin and you get intense data science training in person, something that is tailored for you to get the data science job of your dreams after you graduate. So for two months, you get lectures and tutorials run by experts in the fields of natural language processing, computer vision, deep learning, classic machine learning, and many more Uh, fields related to data science. And then for the final month, you do a project, but not just some sort of uh, random project, a very cool project that you are personally passionate about. And once you're done with that, you take that to job interviews and you get hired. So the data science retreat have astonishing rates of uh, their graduates being hired, about 86% in the first three months and about 96% in the first six months after graduating. Very cool program. You can check it out at datascienceretreat.com slash SDS. So if you go to that URL, you will get a special discount that Jose has set up for our podcast listeners. Note that Super Data Science does benefit as well if you follow that URL. When you're checking out, make sure to also specify in the field that how did you find out about Data Science Retreat, specify SDS or Super Data Science to get your special discount. So in the podcast, you'll learn all about Data Science Retreat, how Data Science Retreat is leading the space of data science education in Europe by offering something that is called an income share agreement. So with this option of an income share agreement, you don't actually have to pay for your tuition up front. You only pay after you have gotten a job. How cool is that? So find out more on the podcast. That's what we'll be talking about in the first 20 minutes. And then we'll move on to very cool projects. So even if you're not going to be signing up for the Data Science Retreat, you will learn a ton from this podcast. So for instance, Jose will be sharing his views and advice for picking a portfolio of projects. He'll share five steps that are very important in picking and building that portfolio of projects, and you'll learn how to do that on your own. Plus, he'll give us some very cool practical examples of projects that came out of the data science retreat, such as the wheelchair project in the streets of Germany, the malaria microscope, and a robot that picks up cigarette butts. So that is what this podcast is all about. You're going to have a lot of fun and get some really cool examples of data science applications in action. So without further ado, let's welcome Jose Quesada, founder and CEO at Data Science Retreat.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Super Data Science Podcast. Super excited to have you back here on board. Uh, today's guest uh, is a very special guest calling in from Toronto, Jose Quesada. Jose, how are you going today? Everything is great on my side. How are you, Kiru? Very, very good as well. Thank you so much. And uh, how's how's the weather in Toronto these days? Oh, it's been snowing. February is pretty tough. The winter is tough here. But probably so is, I mean, in Berlin, it's pretty much the same about now. So not a big difference. I just uh -huh. to tell your audience, I fly around between Berlin and Toronto right now. Um, so that's why I mentioned Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Interesting because I was talking to somebody from New York a couple of days ago and, or yeah, a couple, maybe a week ago. And they said that it hasn't snowed in New York. The first time it snowed in New York this winter was in February. So, huh. but in Toronto, you're not seeing that. Toronto was no COVID. Toronto. There was snow before, yeah, January and uh, December. I mean, this is Canada after all, so it snows. Yeah. Nice. Is there skiing in Canada near Toronto? Mm, I'm sure there is. I haven't been skiing, but I'm not a skier anyway, so it's it's probably not uh, very common. So there are not that many mountains, I think, around uh -huh. the area. Okay, around that area. Okay, gotcha. Okay, well, Jose, super pumped to have you on the show. Super excited. Um, we got introduced through um, a common connection. Somebody I met at a, um, I think like a business mastermind or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like the work that you're doing is fantastic. You're in uh, the space of AI, data science, uh, I don't even know where to get started. You have this uh, <laughs> AI deep dive data science retreat, uh, deep learning uh, retreat, something that you had running before. So many things. So maybe give us a bit of an overview. How how would you describe all the different projects that you're working on? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. I, I know this podcast that you've been running it for such a long time. It's very high quality, so I love to be here. So let me give you some background about uh, the things that I've been doing. So all these are bootstrap companies. And my my main idea is that it's really a shame that not more people are doing machine learning nowadays because machine learning gives you an incredible amount of leverage to solve real problems. And this is something that people have not seen. My gut feeling is that businesses think that they need to be Google to get value out of machine learning. Mm -hmm. And this is not what I see. So in in the schools that I've been running, you see people building amazing stuff in three months. And they didn't know that much machine learning the way they came in. They learned on the fly and then they found an idea and implemented the solution in the time that they had. So if people can do it in three months, why are companies not doing it? So this is the biggest motivation for me to teach as many people as possible to be effective with machine learning because so that they can solve real problems. Mm. So mm -hmm. technology is always giving you leverage, right? And every technology makes people more powerful, right? But if you compare machine learning to any previous technology in this century, it makes them pale in comparison. For example, uh, before Ruby on Rails, you could not really do very dynamic websites. And then Ruby on Rails came and everybody felt the power of being able to create websites. So many startups were basically Ruby on Rails projects that solve real problems 
um, this made people money, right? That that's a kind of a consequence of solving real people problems. Then uh, apps came around, and of course, many companies were built on top of apps. It's a totally different environment. You have more sensors, you have more data. But I think the next wave, which is machine learning, makes websites and apps look ridiculously underpowered in comparison. So we can build machines that can see the world, that can identify objects, that can understand your language, as you can see when you interact with things like Alexa. This amount of power is actually in the hands of anybody with a computer. So you can literally be in your kitchen table with a laptop running a deep learning model that is detecting something that is needed for, for you to solve a problem because of open source libraries and pre-trained models. You can literally be in your underpants coding in your kitchen table and solving really important problems that were impossible to solve just five years ago. So I think this is where things are going, and this is why I'm so passionate about teaching machine learning and deep learning. Mm. Yeah, and I like your analogy in one of your videos. You gave a great um, example that you can think of artificial intelligence as uh, like somebody who ha knows how to use the power of artificial intelligence is like a caveman who has access to fire. Like with mm. fire, you can draw on the wall, you can cook meat, you can scare away animals that are hunting you. Uh, like it's it's a very strong advantage compared to what everybody else is using. And on top of that, it's not that hard, right? Like artificial intelligence and deep learning, machine learning, uh, creation of those models is becoming easier. Like what would you say to somebody who might be listening to some thinking that, oh, well, I don't have a technical background, I don't know programming. Yeah, so the good news is that the language that people use for machine learning nowadays, Python, is very simple to learn. And of course, you have to be pretty dependable with Python to be able to create products with machine learning. But it's not impossible. And that's a big deal. So there are so many minority groups that will be otherwise disempowered to do anything of this relevance that just learning Python and learning machine learning it's really at your fingertips. It's it's nothing impossible. You don't need to be coming out of a prestigious university. You don't need to, to have powerful computers anymore. You can do things online. I think we, we may be at the start of a time where society in general benefits big time from machine learning. And this is thanks to open source libraries and pre-trained models. So of course, to train a model that does something very sophisticated, you need a lot of compute time. But people who train those models, they publish their, their models, and you can download them and just cut the last layer and retrain them to solve a similar but not exactly the same problem. This is very valuable. Mm. In, in the um, analogy with fire, this is more like not only fire, but somebody will build a steam engine and give you all you need to build more steam engines if you just bother to download the, the recipe, right? Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Very interesting. So how exactly do you help people? What, what are your businesses? Tell us about Data Science Retreat and AI yeah. Deep Dive. Sure. So we take people who already know a bit of programming, a bit of machine learning, and we help them get to the next level so they can join the AI industry. Mm -hmm. And 
um, we do this in a way that it's very concentrated in three months. And we ask them to go through 270 hours of tuition. Wow, that's a lot of tuition. Yeah, yeah. And the people teaching are practitioners from the field that teach only the one thing that they know very well. So they come for two or three days, they teach the one thing, and then they leave. Then the next person comes and does the same. And if you do that over a few days, like a month and a half or so, there is no way around. You're going to get much better. Mm -hmm. But we don't let you go just with that, with tuition. That's, uh, that's not how we operate. So the core part of the project is to create a portfolio piece that is your master, your master work. So you can go to an interview, drop this on the table and point at it and say, I made this. And that should be the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. So six years, that's, that's a very long time. And uh, 200 people, you've probably seen a lot of projects come out of the data science retreat. Um, do you have a number? How many projects um, actually have gone through this program? Ah, I also don't have a number, an exact number. It must be pretty close to the number of people until the end of 2018, where we started doing team projects. Ah, okay. So it must be around 200 as well. Maybe in the last year, less, less so because they were doing projects in teams. Um, so one thing that I've learned is that team projects go farther, and we highly recommend people to do team projects because the final product is more finished and it looks better in demo day. So we have a demo day at the end where they present to, to companies and to the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like Y Combinator, right? Like they, they do team projects as well. Yeah, yeah. So the Y Combinator people come with an idea that is often already a company and they may even be making money. At DSR, the Science Retreat, they, they want a job at the end. So they don't care so much about the product. So they go crazy and do a passion project that doesn't mm. necessarily aim at being a company. Mm. But yeah, the demo day part is kind of the same. We invite companies, the companies want to hire them. They don't want to fund them. That's ah, the difference, okay. right? Yeah, but we do want them to start companies. And in the history of DSR, three, three projects became startups. And one of them is still around. Maybe two of them are still around. Mm -hmm. Very cool, very cool. And how many people got hired? Oh, everybody gets hired eventually. So. <laughs> I think uh, so unless you go to a city where there is no data science whatsoever, then everybody gets hired. So I think the numbers are something like 86% within three months and 90 something high, 98, something like that. These are all numbers uh, after six months. Mm, that's amazing. And before the podcast, you mentioned about the ISA or income share agreement. I want to like, yeah. understand this a bit further. Is, does that mean like there's, first of all, how does that work? And does that mean there's like no upfront cost for people to actually uh, join this program, which sounds <laughs> sounds quite crazy. Right, right, right. So um, this is very interesting. So in Europe, everybody pays full price upfront. Well, everybody up to 2018 or so, where we partner with a third party, a FinTech company that will offer a contract where they're so confident that our people are going to get good jobs that they will pay their tuition in advance and then get them to repay them once they get a job. Mm. So you pay more, they, they mm -hmm. charge, I don't know, maybe 13% or something like that, but it's not a loan. So it's very different from a loan. It has a lot of downside protection. 
for example, you only pay proportional to your salary. Uh-huh. I think it's 10% of your salary. So if you are making zero, then, then you pay zero. Mm-hmm. So you can be looking for a job for say six months, eight months, whatever. Maybe you want to hold hold it so to get a better job. They don't send you a request to pay until you get a job, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you don't get a job paying more than I think it's 30k or 40k, I don't remember, then you pay nothing. So you have to get a good job, not a one, right? Oh, so if your job doesn't pay you uh, more than 30k, then you don't need to repay anything. Exactly. And also after five years, the, the contract disappears. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm telling you this from memory, so I may be getting confused. Mm-hmm. So you have to definitely go to shansen.eg. Uh, that's their, that's the name of the platform that does this and figure out the terms because I actually don't know the terms too closely. But this is the way it works. It's really designed so that there is no burden on, on you. So we, the company training you, invest in your future. So the more successful you are, the easier it is for us. Mm. So you start paying faster, the the better the job you get is, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's um, ISA is, as you had uh, mentioned before, they are getting more popular in the US and we talked about this a bit there's a school or actually a proper university in San Francisco which uh, I heard about on the uh, what was this oh actually on the Y Combinator podcast uh, started founded by Jeremy Rossman and they have this school called Make School it's Mm -hmm. a proper university with a campus physical location in San Francisco where they that's how they teach like you go to university you don't pay anything which is crazy for the u.s where we've all heard the stories of the hundreds of thousands of student loans when people finish university here you pay nothing for your whole degree once you graduate um once you have a job you pay some percentage whether i don't know eight percent ten percent of your salary uh ongoing until you pay off your loan so that i love this approach and this is why because the teachers teaching you when the setup arrangement is like that, when you're not taking as a student, you're not taking on all of the risk, right? Mm-hmm. The risk is on the university. The teachers teaching you are incentivized to design much better curriculums. They're incentivized to make sure you're doing your tutorials and homework, make sure you're keeping up with class to give you the best knowledge and equip you the best way to get a job. Not just give you that theoretical fundamental knowledge that is good is great but it's not applicable in real life they they prepare you for the real world otherwise they don't get paid at the end of the day right so the, exactly. the incentives are aligned exactly so for me this is revolutionary it can make things happen that that are unprecedented so social mobility for example is really a topic for me so imagine that you have no access to loans you are in a part of europe that is not doing very well economically. Let's say the south of Spain, where I'm from. So there are people there who have a PhD in physics or in math or in you know engineering, and they are doing not much. And there are people in Madrid that are getting paid 1,000 euro per month, and they have the skills to be doing much better. So they could just teleport to Berlin, go through our course in three months, and pay nothing upfront, and then once they get a job, they start paying. So the job that they're going to get is so much better than the one they had 
back home or maybe that they had none because unemployment rate in in the youth uh, uh, percentage of the population in Spain is ridiculous. It's like 30% overall and 50% in young people. So I think it's a fantastic opportunity. And it's really tragic that most people don't know about this. So ISAs are virtually unknown in Europe. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can provide ISAs to everybody in Europe. So there's like, what, 550 million people in Europe? Mm-hmm. Anybody in Europe can apply for an ISA. And because of the reputation of the school, they're going to get it. So our partner is very happy to give an ISA to pretty much anybody we send. So if we interview you and you pass, we do two technical interviews. If you pass, you basically have changed your life already, assuming that you can get through the course and graduate, which is so far very likely. So this is my my mission right now. So I want to go all over Europe and tell people that this is happening. And this is why I thank you, Kirill, for having me in your podcast so I can communicate this message to more people. That's awesome. Thank you very much for uh, like coming and, and sharing this message. I wish more people were doing this. This is this is really cool. And um, yeah, what, what I want to talk about next is let's talk a bit about how this uh, program is actually structured or like so, so that people who are maybe far away from Europe will never be able even to have the chance to join this can get some value like Maybe there are some things you can share already that people can apply in their own learning uh, or in their own approach to projects. So how does it all get started? Somebody joins and they have to pass some interviews, assuming they pass interviews. How, yeah. how big are the groups of people that go through this program? Oh, it's pretty small from maybe eight to 14. I think 14 is the maximum we've had. So it's mm-hmm. very boutique. So we mm-hmm. don't have big rooms or anything mm-hmm. because it's so intense to work with every single one of them until they produce a portfolio project that is of the quality that we want, right? So people come from literally all over the world. We have people from Russia, from Japan, from the US, from all parts of the world that are not Europe. But mm-hmm. let's say like 80% are from Europe. Okay, got you. Um, and then you said 270 hours of content. So um, somebody comes, like a, an instructor comes in and trains. Like what, what are some of the topics that you yeah. in, including your curriculum right so it's mostly nowadays is a lot of deep learning so there is a lot of uh, computer vision a lot of nlp classical machine learning it's still important but not as much as before so we renew the curriculum very fast so we throw away about 20 percent of the curriculum every three months wow and yeah, we, we burn through material like, like crazy. But this has to end because we are now teaching things that are way more advanced than what people get in interviews. For example, we are teaching reinforcement learning, GANs, things that are never going to show up in an interview in most companies. Uh-huh. Why, why do you teach them then? <laughs> There's this tension between what people want to learn and why they want to come to our course and what companies want, right? So if we only teach what the companies want today, then uh-huh. we're not preparing people for for the future. So we're trying to prepare people for, you know, to have a career that is successful the next two, three years without having to reinvent themselves. So mm-hmm. the good news is that they will for sure know the answer to any interview question about classical machine learning or, you know, Spark 
things that are more vanilla, let's say, but they mm. also have the extra extra points, let's say, of knowing how to do the cool stuff, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so three months, so they learn for, I'm assuming like a, a month or two, and then they start on their project, right? So how do, how does that work? Is that, yeah, is that a correct so, assumption? Yeah, yeah. And so now it's more like two months of classes and one month portfolio project. Before it was 50-50. Uh -huh. uh -huh. So the number of classes is re reduced progressively over time and the amount of portfolio project time is increased. Sorry, so if it's yeah. two two months of portfolio classes and one month of portfolio, then... More or less, uh, yeah. So, but then that means portfolio project time has decreased. Uh, in the last two or three batches, yes, because we added a lot of classes. We're uh -huh. teaching now statistics, math, all kind of other things that may come up in interviews and we didn't teach them before. Uh -huh. So uh, gotcha. the portfolio project, um, it's very difficult to come up with an original topic that is mm -hmm. first a passion project for you because you're going to work like crazy here. So you have to really love what you're doing, but also something that solves a real problem. So people spend literally weeks on one-on-one -on -one, uh, meetings with either myself or one of the directors in Berlin to come up with just the idea. Mm. The idea is super important. And here I want to talk a bit about, like, I really loved your presentation. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes as well if anybody mm. wants to watch the video version. Um, so you had, you had a presentation in December last year. Uh, mm -hmm. where, where was that? Do you remember? Yeah, this was in Toronto. So I uh -huh. have also a series of blog posts that I can send you, just you can link them in the show notes, which is how to find a portfolio project that is going to be successful. So I, yeah. I, I spent weeks on those posts. I wrote everything that I know after 200 plus portfolio projects mentoring. And then I think if you read those three blog posts or watch the, the presentation, you, you get a lot of value already of the things that we do during the three months to create a new portfolio project. Brilliant. It's becoming increasingly difficult to find an idea. So many things are done already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that's what I wanted to talk about here. So that, uh, of course, anybody who comes through the program will experience this in, in uh, the real world with your guidance and with your coach's guidance. But even people who uh, won't go through a program, this is, yeah. I think this was very valuable what I learned about how to pick a project. So let's let's go through these points. So there's a yeah, couple yeah. of points that you mentioned in your presentation. If you don't mind, let's let's uh, get started and help Absolutely. people find their portfolio yeah. projects. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first one was uh, you don't have to be Google, right? You don't need too much data to get to to make an idea happen. Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. Right. So there is this uh, myth that. You need a lot of data and a lot of compute power to do anything with deep learning. That is not true in my experience. Many of the projects are done on data that the team generated themselves. They label themselves. And the compute time is not that long. So the longest compute times we've had were with GANs. And those guys had a Titan running for two weeks, something like that. But in general, they don't need that much compute power. They they just use AWS or more recently Google Colab, and they are pretty okay with that. So that tells me that you definitely don't need that much compute power. Mm -hmm. Also, if you pick the right projects, 
you usually have a pre-trained model that has done most of the heavy lifting for you, and then you just have to retrain the network for your specific circumstances. So tell us a bit more about that. Like, how does a pre-trained model work? Like, that's that's quite hard to imagine. If if my project is new, nobody's done mm -hmm. it before. How come there's already a deep learning model I can take and it's already going to be working? Like I just have to change the, the last layer. What does that mean? Right. Okay. So let's imagine that in your portfolio project, you need to detect trees or cars to segment them out of the picture for whatever reason. You're looking at sidewalks, for example, and you want to just have sidewalk data, not trees or bicycles or or cars. Mm -hmm. So then you can take a model that is pre-trained to detect any object and to do object segmentation, and then just use that to, to segment the trees and the bicycles and the cars, and that's it. So you are done. You don't need to train the model for that. If you need to do things for different types of sidewalks, that's very specific. Your model that you downloaded somewhere may not know anything about sidewalks, then you may have to train the model to say, okay, this is a bike path, this is a stone type of sidewalk, this is a flat stone sidewalk, and you may need the extra training. Mm -hmm. But this is saving you a lot of time already, just by not having to train a model to detect cars, trees, and so on. That's fantastic. And this is, oh, okay. this is a superpower that we got very recently when people started sharing retrain models. This was uh -huh. not the case 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But what was that that you mentioned earlier about uh, just replacing the, the last layer of a model? Right. So in transfer learning, this is how this technique is called, you reuse most of an architecture and the last layer that is giving you a mapping between the, the weights and categories, you, you cut out. So imagine that you have a model that is detecting cats or dogs. And mm -hmm. you don't want to detect cats or dogs, you want to detect hamsters. So you cut the last layer that has two nodes, one for mm -hmm. cat and one for dog, and you add a new layer that is untrained, that is hamster or not hamster. Mm -hmm. And then you train the model again. But you don't mm -hmm. update all the layers, you just up update the last layer. Sometimes people use a normal classifier from classical machine learning, like an SBM or a random forest on top, and that's it. So you only throw away the last bit of the model. Mm -hmm. So that's that's uh, transfer learning. In a transfer notion. learning, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And why does it work? Why, why does a model that like is trained, the weights are trained to detect cats versus dogs, why does right. that then mm -hmm. work on hamsters? Yeah, very good question. So this is something that applied people really obsessed uh, with, but uh, in academia, transfer learning is not a big topic. So if you go to NeurIPS or any of the big conferences, there is not so much about transfer learning, but it has immediate applied value. So it's mostly the applied people who have been playing around with this. So the reason it works is because neural networks detect features for you and create nodes, create neurons that are sensitive to, to particular features. For example, in a neural network detecting dogs, there might be a feature somewhere inside that detects ears, another one that detects noses, another one that detects legs, another mm -hmm. one that detects tails. And well, if hamsters have, you know, 
legs and noses and ears, then you are reusing that. So of course it's not the same, right? Yeah. But this is what you're going to train on top, right? But but it's it's not the same, but it's good enough, right? Yeah, exactly. And that good enough is saving you weeks of training time. Like, I, for instance, the way I, I can imagine it is detecting a dog versus a tree is uh, similar. Like, a dog is more similar to a hamster than it is to a tree. So if a neural network can pick out between a dog and a tree, can say this is a dog, then it's going to be able, especially if you retrain the last layer, is going to be able to do not perfectly, but good enough is going to be able to pick out a hamster in the same way. So it just saves you, like, as you said, it saves you a ton of time for, yeah. you know, maybe 80 or 90% of the same or of the ac of the optimal of the ultimate accuracy that you get. Right. And remember that we have neural networks now that are extremely good at object categorization. Mm -hmm. So the state of the art used to be uh, 10,000 classes. I think you can do 100 classes right now. So you have neural networks that can classify the world in 100,000 classes, let's say. Wow. And that's pretty much saying machines can see. Machines mm -hmm. can understand the world at least to the point that they, they can segment which objects are in the picture. So this, this is extremely powerful. So if you want to build things, if you want to build technology, how cool is it that you can build machines that can see? Mm -hmm. Right, so this is not a website where you have to click and input your data and click next. This is a machine that sees the world, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for sure, and you have that wonderful example of the wheelchair project, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Can you give us? Can you outline that? I, I really thought that was, I thought it was a very cool, you know, project that helps people. It's for social good. Uh, I'd love for others to hear about it. So if you don't mind uh, just outlining what was the project about. Yeah, 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 I, I would love to. So um, at DSR, Data Science Retreat, we try to do projects with social impact. So it's not on the website. I don't tell people that we do this. But if you look at the projects and think about what they have in common, it's that. So how do you use machine learning to help people, to solve problems that real people have, right? And this also tells you something about the diversity in, in the student uh, set that we get. So this was Masanori, a Japanese uh, person who came from Japan to Berlin to do data science retreat. And when he landed, he looked at the sidewalks and thought, wow, these sidewalks are very bumpy. This would be horrible for a wheelchair user. And he knew that because he was a volunteer pushing wheelchair users in Japan. Oh. So I've been living in, in, sorry, in, in Berlin for 11 years. I, it never occurred to me that the sidewalks would be a problem for anybody. Mm -hmm. But then immediately I looked down and said, wow, yes, they are very bumpy. So now Masanori, he had a team, uh, a team member. Um, so actually, so uh, he, the two of them tried to find a solution with machine learning that will help people navigate Berlin in the smoothest way possible. And the way they did that was by analyzing sidewalks. So they went around with a wheelchair with two mobile phones attached to to the to the side to the sides, pointing down. So recording the floor as they were moving, and with the accelerometer registering the bumpiness of the sidewalk. Right. Mm. So that was the ground truth. Of course, they could not go to the entire city, so they did a few apples. 
and then they came back and tried to generalize that to all sidewalks in Berlin. And how will they do that? Well, they use the API for Google Street View, and it turns out that you can you can just ask for the sidewalks in Google Street View. So you have to remove all the obstacles, the trees, the, the cars, and so on. And then they had a model that will tell you what the composition of the sidewalk is with their ground truth. And this was also not that big of a model. So that comes back to the point that I was trying to make, that you don't need to have that much data. So they had a few apples of uh, data, and then Google Street Maps to generalize. So they did that. and. Basically, for every picture in Google Street View, they had a segmentation algorithm that colored differently the different parts of the sidewalk. So then, for every meter of sidewalk, they could assign a coefficient of how bumpy it is. Now, with this information, you can overlay another map, like open, open, open maps. There's an open version, open source version of uh, Google Maps. I think open Street Maps. Yeah, OpenStream map. Yeah, exactly. So on that, they overlay their data, and then they could do recommendations. They, th that part they didn't get to do. They they ran out of time. Mm. So if you are in a wheelchair, then you can say, okay, I'm here. I want to go there. What is the smoothest path? And then the the machine will tell you. Mm -hmm. So that is wow. one project where machine learning can have social impact. Wow, and we do, that is amazing. We do this uh, as much as we can. So every batch, there is at least two or three projects that are like this. So we built a malaria microscope that runs on a phone. We built a toy cell driving car that goes around and picks up cigarette butts. We built all kind of other things, a tool to help children in Africa to, not children, but uh, the teachers to grade dictation automatically because there are very few teachers in many areas in Africa. And people need to learn how to write. So. Uh, so often we run out of time and we don't get to, to finish the product. And this is mm -hmm. really sad because people graduate and they forget about their projects. That's the way it is. They just want to get a job, they get a job, and they're done. So many, many projects are sitting there doing nothing, and they could be definitely being put to production, and we just don't have the capacity to do this. So if you have any ideas on how to find people that could take these projects to production, do let me know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the tricky part, really, because um, that, that's I completely agree with you. It'd be, it'd be really cool to have these projects um, become businesses, but ultimately, mm -hmm. that's I guess that's a that's a difference between what you're doing and what companies like Y Combinator are doing. Where yeah. here you help people find jobs, uh, and I can totally see how somebody who has done this, uh, like, for instance, even this project we just spoke about, uh, comes to a job interview, puts that on the table. That's the end of the interview because it shows how passionate this person is. And mm -hmm. like, if somebody did, came to an interview with me like that, I would not really not ask any questions. Maybe more more about the, you know, their, their attitude, like as in uh, how well they'll fit into the team cultural aspects of, you know, like what is, what is a good working culture that they, they appreciate and things like that. But technical questions would stop right there because <laughs> right. it's it's a great testament. And the difference is, I guess, that um, 
that is much less risky than starting a startup and launching a product because it it you run into a lot sorts of challenges like Absolutely. you have to you know financing business business plan uh, marketing sales materials um competition legislation there's so many different aspects to running a business and i completely understand while yes it would be great to have these projects out there changing the world the chances of a project like that failing are extremely high most startups fail within the first couple of years um and i completely understand if somebody is like hey this was a great project but i actually what i want is a job and hey when once they have a stable job maybe they'll have free time and they'll continue working on this project or you know get back to it at a later stage <laughs> yeah so this is what happens we try to build something around this to continue the projects it's just too complicated. The runway is, say, five, ten years. We don't have that capacity to support projects for that long. Yeah, you should. You should maybe like create a little uh, repository online where, like, anybody can go and look at this. But like, you know, like I don't know if uh, if the people working these projects will be fine with it. But similar to how Tesla made its patents available to everybody, mm. you could just be like, hey, here are the projects. Um, anybody can pick them up from here and continue working on them. Yeah, that has we, we consider that that has some downsides. Uh, one is that people expect things to look better, and you you have to support them somehow. And in my experience, when people graduate, the last thing they want is to look back at their projects and support them and answer mm. questions about oh, it doesn't run on my computer. Can you help me? They don't mm -hmm. want that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I guess that's a that's the next step for for you to solve as a you know as a, <laughs> a business as data science retreat. That's a, yeah, a cool yeah. challenge to have. But let's move on to the next point. That that was a really cool example, and that was uh, to uh, illustrate the point that you don't need too much data. You don't have to be Google. Like the yeah. These guys just ran around, took some videos, trained the mm. model, and then accessed the Google API. Yeah. Um, another cool thing uh, in your video you pointed out, so that was number one. This, the second one was the eyebrow test, a really cool <laughs> uh, filter for making sure you're picking the right project. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there are so many things that you can do with machine learning now that are impressive, that you should not settle for anything that doesn't make the other person uh, have the eyebrow effect. So if the eyebrows don't go up when you tell somebody about your project, then find another project. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many ideas that you can do right now with machine learning that will will make people go, wow, this is amazing. So just don't do anything that doesn't produce the eyebrow effect. Eyebrows must go up. If they don't, pick another project. Mm. And, the, and that can't be your mom. <laughs> you can't be using a test on your mom. Right? <laughs> they, they cannot be us, right? Just like you said in your video, you, that, uh, you can't check the eyebrow test with your mother. Ah, uh, yeah, it cannot be your mom, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be someone else. Okay. And then and another cool one you said, uh, number three, was a ballpark of a good idea. So if somebody listening to this, by the way, why is this useful to you listening to this podcast? Like there's 10,000 people listening to this podcast. Like naturally, even if everybody wanted to run to data science retreat, like they just no capacity to get everybody through. But why is this useful for you to do at home if you are planning on growing Skarkini a career? Is because just follow the same principles that Jose is pointing out and you know uh, ideally read the blogs once we put them in the show notes but ultimately follow the same principles and 
create your own projects and do them at home. And maybe, you know, like through a platform like ours, like Super Data Science, you can get together into a team and um, be part of like a, uh, maybe a group of people working together. But ultimately do those projects and, and then that is going to be something you can showcase on your LinkedIn, on Medium, when you come to an interview, whatever else. And that's, that's why I really uh, think this is very valuable. Uh, do you think these principles are valuable to people who are going to be doing this on their own? Absolutely. So this is why I did this uh, series of three blog posts. It took me weeks to to write them down. Um, everything that I've learned about picking projects is there. So you can benefit from that. Just read the blog post and see if you can come up with projects yourself that will produce the eyebrow effect and will be on your GitHub or better yet, will be showable, will be physically present in the real world that you can put it in front of people and they will go like, wow, this is something that you can do with machine learning today. Now I get AI. Now I get where people get excited. Uh -huh. Because okay. you know what? There is this idea that AI is all hype, that we are talking it up way too much. I, I see that point. I see that the expectations could be out of proportion for things like self-driving cars or uh, artificial general intelligence or even NLP, natural language processing. We don't want journalists writing that computers can understand your, your language now and produce language that is as good as a human because that's not where we are. That's not. Even the self-driving car, it's kind of not there yet, right? And I have several friends working in the industry. But what I think is not hype is this superpower that anybody in their kitchen with a crappy laptop can build things like what you will see if you read this blog post or of if you just follow people doing data science retreat. These things are at your fingertips. And it's tragic that only a tiny percentage of humanity is being able to use this technology. For example, yeah. women, women in machine learning, women in AI, not that many of them. And we try to incentivize them. We've been like partially successful. The, the batch that we had the most women was 33%, I think. So it's very hard to get women into AI. And that's 50% of the population of the world. Like, mm -hmm. what are we doing wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So my gut feeling after doing this for six years is that it's an embarrassment that we don't train more people to use this technology. It's like some of us discovered the fire and we didn't share it with the rest of humanity. We just kept it to ourselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy. We should share it more for sure. Mm. And to your point about the self-driving cars, uh, by the way, uh, I, uh, for everyone listening, uh, Jose's article, what will the first blog is available on LinkedIn and then you can click the links from there to follow to the second and third. And so I'm looking at the first one here and you've got a quote from Andrew Nye saying, if you're trying to understand AI near term, AI's near term impact, don't think sentience, instead think automation on steroids. That's a, that's a valid point that that's where we are and that's where the most value lies right now. Yeah, so another quote from Andrew Eng is anything that takes a human less than one second to make a decision is automated or will be automated very soon. Mm -hmm. So think about boring, repetitive tasks that you do that you don't like. Mm -hmm. And don't think about like higher cognition tasks like writing a novel or deciding whether somebody is uh, suitable for a job. 
that's definitely outside of the realm of possibility. But there is so much low-hanging fruit. And just in manufacturing, which is a very strong uh, field in Europe, there's so much, so many opportunities for improvement. So there is this idea that Europe is really behind in AI. If you go to conferences, you don't see that much action, for sure, from European researchers. But uh, it's just in the culture there that people don't talk about what they're doing. But there are companies like Audi, BMW, Danone, other like food manufacturing, Airbus, doing all kind of cool stuff. They just don't tell anybody. And there is where you could have a lot of impact. The low-hanging fruit is still there. If you go to the US, for example, where there are 20 startups for every possible application of AI already, the low-hanging fruit may not be there. In Europe, things are starting to happen now, and they're happening at a scale, and they, they are really affecting production plans big time. Mm. That's a good point. And Speaking of conference, I think it's a good time to mention that uh, Jose might, <laughs> might if, <laughs> if the stars align, might be joining us for GSGO Europe, which is uh, 15th, 16th, 17th of May 2020. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you can get them at datasciencego.com. Um, I know, Jose, you haven't been to uh, GSGO yet, and this is our first time actually running it in Europe. We're going to be running in Berlin. Um, but how do you feel about like if the stars align and you're able to come? How do you feel about it? Oh, I'm super excited! I would love to go to your conference. I mean, just from the things that you've told me, the way you run conferences and your your goal with it, this is totally a very different conference from what you will get otherwise, right? Everybody has been to conferences that are very commercial, where you get pitched products and so on, mostly big platform vendors and I don't know about the rest of the conference, but I feel completely cheated when I'm in one of those. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And definitely, definitely very excited about uh, this upcoming event in Europe. And um, if you, like, again, if the stars align again, and in October this year, you can come to this guy, this has to go US, I think you'd enjoy talking to the, to Gabriela de Queros. She's This will be her third time coming to the event. And to your point about um, having or inspiring more women to get into the space of AI. She's doing a great job. She runs ourladies.org mm. and they have like, you know, over a hundred, I think, chapters worldwide now with uh, something crazy. I think like 30,000 members. Uh, like I might be getting numbers right, but wrong. <laughs> but she's oh. doing a fantastic job. And uh, at the end of the day, I've talked to her about this a few times. At the end of the day, it boils down to creating those role models, like yeah. and to, to encourage people. Absolutely. I think for women in particular, what they really benefit from is to have a role model. If they see another woman that made it big in the field, they get encouraged. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's for true sure. for everybody, right? <laughs> I don't think it's special for women. But I've heard from women that they really look forward to see role models. Yeah, that's that's definitely. It's, all, it's always helpful, right? Like for any minority, if, if you don't see anybody of your... Uh, like th that you can relate to in a certain field, then you're less likely to go into it. Um, exactly. So yeah, mm. very, very interesting. Uh, but hopefully we can do, can do our part in that. And like that example where you said 33% in one cohort were uh, women in your um, mm. uh, intake. I think that's mm. that's a, setting a great example and showcasing those stories is great as well. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let's continue. So the next step, so we've talked about you don't need to be Google, you don't need a crazy amount of data to start an idea. A lot of people get put off by that. Then check the eyebrow test. This next one was very cool. Ballpark of a good idea. If you don't have a good idea, you just need to be in the ballpark of a good idea. And this is how that cigarette project came to life. Can you tell us a bit about that? Right. So um, one person came to me towards the end of week three, and he told me, well, Jose, I've been thinking about this for three weeks. I could not come up with anything. I have zero ideas. And then I asked him, okay, what do you feel passionate about? What is alive inside of you? And he said, well, I actually hate waste. waste. I don't want to see things going to waste. And then we started looking for things that had to do with recycling, with trash. So he found a data set from Stanford where they had pictures of trash. Mm-hmm. And then we thought, okay, how about we we do something about picking up trash? And then I realized that we had a self-driving toy car from a previous batch, from batch eight. So Marcus Jones, who is an incredible uh, developer, he produced an operating system for a toy car like in 2018 before Amazon created theirs and, and made it open source. And his portfolio project was a toy self-driving car that was driving around in a circuit, so doing laps mm-hmm. in a circuit. Mm-hmm. So I thought, why don't we take that car and we make a version of Wally? You know this Pixar movie Wally? It's this yeah, little yeah. robot that goes around picking up trash. I love so that what movie, if, Right, me too. So what if we take that idea and, okay, we have a self-driving car, there's a toy. We just have to give it some way to pick up trash. And then he went out and found two other team members. And then they figured out that they could mount a mechanic arm, a robotic hand on top of the car. Uh But then just identifying all types of trash, that was not as interesting. So one different person from that team came up with the idea of picking up cigarette butts. So cigarette butts are very poisonous for the environment. One cigarette butt can contaminate 20 liters of water. Birds take them and give them to their chicken and they die. Mm -hmm. So they are terrible. And smokers keep flipping them around and they are very pollutant aspect of of Mm -hmm. what we humans do. And they are not easy to be picked up with a broom or with many other means because they are so tiny and so light, right? Mm -hmm. So then the goal was to just make a robot that goes around and stab the cigarette butts. So we tried grabbing them with a pincer, but it didn't work, so stabbing. So this is what I mean when I say that you only need to be in the ballpark of a good idea. The, wow. the initial idea was, okay, I hate waste. Then another expansion is, let's try to pick up trash. Then another expansion, we can use a toy car from a previous batch. Another expansion is, let's mount a robotic arm on top. Another expansion is, let's not pick any trash, but just cigarette butts. These are high high targets, high value targets. Another expansion is, let's try to stop them instead of grabbing them. So this is what I mean that you only need to land in a part of the space where there is a good idea. You can iterate around this. This took weeks for sure, don't get me wrong. But this is how it works in general. Mm. And in your blog and video as well, you have a great 
visualization to support this like a like a radar the ones that you see like on on a on a ship on a military mm -hmm. ship like with uh, an x in the middle and it's green and this thing is around it's a great uh, example right like so you you don't know what your idea is but if it if it's somewhere on the radar it means you're mm -hmm. nearby uh, like start somewhere get get to it love mm -hmm. that example um, <laughs> thank you thank you and if you still can't come up with idea, there's step number four that you can take is watering holes. <laughs> yes. What are those? What's that all about? Right. So this is something that I borrowed from Amy Hoy, who talks about how to pick up ideas for a startup. Mm -hmm. um, she says that you need to pick up a problem that is a real problem, like hair on fire, and not a nice to have. Mm -hmm. And the one characteristic that those problems have is that people talk about them. They bitch uh -huh. about them, right? So where do they bitch about them? In what she calls watering holes. A watering uh -huh. hole is a place where people gather to talk about their problems. It could be Reddit, it could be Twitter, it could be a forum, it could be an actual um, water uh, water cooler in an, in an office. People hang around it and they talk about their problems there. So uh -huh. you should be there and you should listen to people complaining about their life. Because if there is something in their life that you can fix, then that's your your portfolio project. That's your eyebrow effect right there. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and and your analogy as well is great. That the one you used in the video was, if you are going to an African safari, you're not going to wait for the animals in the bush. You're going to go to the watering hole where all animals come to drink, and that's where all the action happens. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one more one that I really liked, and we can dive into this one is again to do with data and it is about producing your own data and you you gave a very good tip use hardware like sometimes you can find data online right mm -hmm. great mm -hmm. but sometimes just go and produce your own data and we already talked about that wheelchair project that was very a great example of producing um you know like that starting data to identify the pathways or like classify those walkways but you have another fantastic uh, example of producing your own data, the malaria microscope. Tell us a bit about that. Mm -hmm. That I found that project like incredibly inspiring. That what was uh, that yeah. that one person was able to accomplish on their own. That's yeah, that's really amazing. So there was this participant Eduardo who woke up one day and realized that if he did the right things, he could save six hundred thousand lives per year. Mm -hmm. So what he wanted to do was to use deep learning to detect malaria using a phone mm -hmm. and a cheap microscope that he will put together with some parts that you can get from, um, from China. So you can buy a cheap microscope and kind of attach it to, to a phone and get enough augmentation to detect malaria parasites. So the way humans do this right now, doctors, is just to put a blood sample on a microscope and count the number of parasites. And if there is more than a certain number per square millimeter or whatever, then they declare that the person has malaria. Mm -hmm. So counting and detecting things in an image is something that machine learning can do very well for you. Mm -hmm. So his idea was to just use machine learning to do that. And it had to be very low cost. So he got to $60 per unit and a second-hand microscope, sorry, sorry, a second-hand um, phone. Mm -hmm. So when we saw this, we thought, hmm, we need to do more projects like this, number one. 
And number two, we have to get this project the most visibility that we can. So we paid for somebody to do a video, professional video. This video went into a crowdfunding campaign. So he got, I think, 5,000 euro, which he used to fly to the beginning of the Amazon River, where there is plenty of malaria. And then he started collecting samples there. So the first data set he got to do proof of concept was an online data set for malaria that anybody could have used in the world. Then the second data set, he used his hardware to collect more samples. But then as this became more popular, then he started approaching hospitals that are in the areas where there is malaria. And he just asked them to give them malaria samples. He will take pictures of them. But after doing this for a while, he has now more malaria samples than any single hospital on earth. Wow. So yeah, this is the power of using hardware, right? So a cheap microscope can give you leverage. That's an incredible amount of data that you can collect if people use it. Uh -huh. That's crazy. And yeah, he's, he's still going around giving talks about this and so on. It's a little bit of a pity because at some point he had 20 people in a WhatsApp group. So it was going well. It was a non-profit and so on. But at some point he realized that He's not going to make money out of this ever because you cannot make money out of poor people that you are trying to save. So yeah. he will never be able to run this as the single activity of his life. So he kind of gave up. I mean, not completely. He's still running it, but uh -huh. he's now a consultant and doing. He has a full time job, right? So yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. That's that's the the real like the next real challenge of to have a good idea. Like, what what exactly do you do with it? in terms of even if you're extremely passionate about it, these things require resources and unless there's like funding or mm -hmm. um, unless it's uh, like uh, the way we run our businesses, you and I, unless like it's mm -hmm. uh, bootstrapped, you know, you yeah. are able to invest some money initially, but then you're able to generate profit and reinvest that back into the business. Um, unless that's, that's the case, you're going to ultimately just work 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 and around now you'll have to sell your house your car you'll start eating beans and rice and so on and, and that's <laughs> it and then then yeah. you'll run out of like even just ways to support yourself let alone the business so it's a real dilemma you're right it's a, it's a pity that sometimes some of these fantastic ideas uh, don't get traction yeah yeah yes coming up with uh, business ideas on top of doing fancy demos that could, could have social impact is really a challenge. Yeah. One, one reason I like ISA so much, the Inconsider Agreements, is that it's one way to have social impact and foment social mobility that is actually a good business as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. Uh, helps people in all walks of life. So yeah, if, if anybody listening to this is uh, in Berlin area or Germany or even Europe, Great Europe or anywhere in the world and is interested in uh, checking out the data science retreat by Jose, uh, make sure to get in touch. When 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 are your next uh, intakes this year in 2020? Yeah, I think the next one is uh, March 30th. I have mm -hmm. to actually go to the website to, to tell you exactly. So we have four intakes per year. We had one in January. So the next one is March 30th, the, the one after June 29th and September 21st. Okay. 
question how how far in advance should people apply is it too late to apply for the march intake no no we keep running interviews until basically the day before so if you are good and you pass the interview you can come anytime mm -hmm. so it's a, a lot of interviews but yeah <laughs> okay and what's the website to apply yeah datasciencetreat.com we can put it on the show notes yeah datasciencetreat.com is there like a retreat to you like go to um you know drinks and net, like i don't know it's just fun stuff as well <laughs> yeah people keep finding us looking for yoga retreats and things like that yeah. The the name retreat may have been unfortunate because in North America we could not use it because it's associated to uh, things that are not hard work like being lazy or doing yoga or yeah. being a monk. Not so in Europe. The thing that I was going for is this uh, writer's retreat. When you are a writer and you want to oh, yeah, finish, yeah. Your, finish your masterpiece novel and you go on a retreat and go to the top of a mountain, get kind of time to be undisturbed and finish your novel. This is what I was going for. That's the meaning of retreat. And it's kind of getting some traction. So people start talking about boot camps as retreats, which is kind of very cool. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, in Spain, at least people talked about yogurts as Danone. And Danone mm -hmm. is just a brand that does the yogurt, right? So mm -hmm. this is kind of happening with retreats, which is very cool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Jose, uh, we've actually come to a... Uh, end in our terms of time for our podcast um huge pleasure having on this show really same here, cool same here. really <laughs> cool discussion where before we go before we finish up where can our listeners find you so we already mentioned data retreat.com anywhere other places that is a good way to follow you and whatever else you're working on yeah you, you can follow my twitter or linkedin i post maybe two or three times per day on twitter um yeah that's at Quesada, it's uh -huh. uh, my last name. And Data Science Retreat has another Twitter as well. Nice, fantastic, yeah, fantastic. Sure. Okay, great. We'll put all those in the show notes. Make sure to connect with Jose on LinkedIn. And one final question for you. What's a book that has impacted your career, something that you'd like to recommend um, people who are starting out into the world of creating AI projects? Aha, uh -huh. so there's no book. Ah, interesting. That could be an opportunity. There is no book for creating projects. There's one You book should write it. You should yeah, write that right. book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is one book that impacted me quite a bit called AI Superpowers, mm -hmm. but it's very negative. So if you read that book, you will get disappointed. You will think that the end is near for anybody not in China or the US. Wow. And that's not my thinking right now. Uh, that That's a conversation for another day, but I think because of open source and pre-trained models and so on, the AI have nots. The rest of the world that is not China and the US have a huge opportunity here. Mm -hmm. But okay, the, the book that you asked me is AI Superpowers by Kai Fu Lee. By Kai Fu Lee. AI Superpowers by Kai Fu Lee. Make sure yeah. not to get <laughs> uh, <laughs> carried away with the US-China principle. You're right. Like anybody in the world can build AI things and really revolutionize this space for sure. Okay, well, once again, Jose, thanks so much for coming on the show. Very, very cool chat. And I look forward to seeing you at Data Science Go, either Europe in May or um, in uh, uh, California in October this year. Awesome. Thanks, Kirill, so much for inviting me. And it was a pleasure for me to, to talk to you. I look forward to meet you in person in one of your conferences. <laughs> 
So there you have it, everybody. That was Jose Quesada, founder and CEO at Data Science Retreat. A huge thank you to Jose and a huge thank you to you for spending this hour with us. Data Science Retreat looks like an amazing project. I am personally very excited to be uh, sharing this with our audience. Uh, don't forget, you can go and get your special discount just for Super Data Science Podcast listeners. If you do decide to sign up, make sure to use the datasciencetreat.com slash SDS URL. And when you're checking out, make sure to specify you heard about the Data Science Retreat on SDS or Super Data Science also to get your discount. Uh, Super Data Science does benefit from this as well. So that's one way of getting in touch with Jose and maximizing your chances of getting hired to your dream job in data science. Definitely check it out. Otherwise, if you want to meet Jose, there's a chance that he will join us at one of the Data Science Go events this year, either in Europe on the 15th, 16th, 17th of May or in the US on the 23rd, 24th, 25th of October. So have a look out at our speaker lineup at datasciencego.com. And if you see him there, you can jump in. And speaking of Data Science Go, it's a fantastic event. We are for the first time running it in Europe, also in Berlin, funnily enough. So if you're around, if you can make it in May, make sure to come on over. There's only 200 seats this year. Tickets are at datasciencego.com. On that note, as usual, you can get all of the show notes for this episode at superdatascience.com slash 343. There you'll find the transcript for this episode, plus any materials mentioned on the podcast, any links, and of course, Jose's LinkedIn, where you can follow him and ask him any questions that you feel are relevant. So that's all at superdatascience.com slash 343. And that's also how to share this episode. If you know someone in Berlin, and if you know someone in Germany or in Europe, who is interested in growing their data science career and getting their dream job, send them this episode, superdatascience.com slash 343. And maybe, just maybe, you'll help them get the dream data science job that they've always been looking for. On that note, I'm checking out. Thanks so much for being here today and I'll see you next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>